Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Today on the California Report magazine, a week of tension, of waiting. It's up to us to protect our democracy, and so we need to count every vote. I'm a longtime conservative, so I just have faith in general. I'm a Christian. I trust and have faith and let it go. I believe what happens, happens. We have to do the hard work to really acknowledge how we got here and the level of racism and white supremacy that allows for the toppling of our democracy. I hereby declare this to be an unlawful assembly. And in the name of the people of the state of California, command all those assembled We're in a spiritual movement that is much bigger than any force they could amass around the corner. Whoever wins, I I just hope that there is a better sense of working together and less division in our country, quite frankly. Somehow, something has to change. I understand that a country of 300 million people will require time to move. And so we have to keep on it. We have to keep working. We have to keep pushing. The mission is far from over. The mission is far from over. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on our show, how Californians weighed in this historic election, not only in the presidential race, but on statewide measures about criminal justice, taxes, and about who gets to vote. How the most expensive proposition in California history could change work in our state. We'll hear from a first-time voter and unpack the so-called Latino vote. Joining me now is Scott Schaefer, who's the senior editor for the California Politics and Government Desk at KQED, to talk about what this election says about who we are as a state and where we're headed. Hi, Scott. Hey, Sasha. So what a week, huh? Oh, my goodness. What a month. (laughs) Uh, What a year. Let's just keep going. (laughs) Well, we should say, Scott, that we are talking to each other on Friday morning uh, because we know our show airs across the state at different times. Um, But as of now, uh, we do have some sense of the California propositions, even though things are still a bit of a nail biter on the national stage. (laughs) Let's just dig in and, and talk a bit about California. I mean, when we look at how the nation perceives us, we're kind of like this giant blue monolith. People perceive us as a liberal and progressive stronghold. But the reality is many of the measures backed by progressives this year in terms of statewide propositions 
didn't pass or don't look like they're passing. Yeah, you're right. If you look at the very top of the ballot, uh, Joe Biden's going to get more than four million more votes than Donald Trump. And some of the counties that went for him four years ago, like Placer County, East of Sacramento are turning blue along with like Butte County, north of Sacramento. But, uh, you know, if, yeah, as you go down the ballot, uh, it's kind of a mixed message. I mean, voters supported maintaining criminal justice reform. So that's sort of a liberal thing. But at the same time, voters pretty handily, you know, rejecting affirmative action, don't want to get rid of cash bail. And it looks like with Prop 15, they're going to reject raising property taxes on commercial property. For me personally, I think, you know what, I think that's a credit to voters because it means that voters aren't just knee jerk. They're not going to say, oh, well, labor uh, supports this or this is liberal and I'm you know, going to vote for it. And it's really, I think, a thoughtful set of decisions that voters seem to be making. Well, let's talk about Prop 15. You did a lot of reporting on that measure. Basically, that would have changed the commercial property tax structure so that commercial businesses would have to pay more of a market rate when it came to taxes. And of course, people who uh, supported it thought that it would fund schools. Uh, but when it came to ponying up and wanting to pay more taxes, Californians don't look like they want to go that way. You know, I think the uh, economy, the pandemic uh, may have given some people pause. Uh, the argument on the no side, of course, was this is the wrong side to raise taxes on businesses. They're already struggling. Uh, and then I think, you know, a lot of homeowners might have been concerned that uh, if Prop 15 passed, uh, dismantling or changing a big part of Prop 13, the uh, tax cutting measure from 1978, that maybe residential taxes would be next. I think the other one that uh, that progressives are a bit surprised at is the outcome of Prop 16, which would have overturned a ban on affirmative action. And uh, at this moment where we have such a reckoning going on in our state for racial justice, voters rejected that one. Yeah, overwhelmingly. That one just never really got traction. Um, you know, I think there's a few reasons for that. Uh, one, you know, this was put on the ballot rather late by the legislature. There hadn't really been a large discussion about affirmative action. It sort of came out of left field, so to speak, for a lot of voters. Um, and, and while the yes on 16 side did have a fair amount of money, $30 million, and there wasn't really any no campaign to speak of. They only had about a million bucks to spend. But I think both sides got overwhelmed by all the money being spent on these other ballot measures. Between that and the presidential election, I think affirmative action and Prop 16 just never really broke through with voters. Well, let's hear from Nicole Dursey. She's with the Yes on 16 campaign. And here's what she has to say about why it was defeated. We know that Californians want to take action, you know, around systemic racism and gender discrimination. We know that they do. We also know that this is a long fight. And it's not an easy fight. 25 years ago, the folks that wrote Prop 209 you know, wrote it in a very deceptive way. That's confusing to people. I mean, one thing I think is really interesting is that many people who were voting on Prop 16 did not vote on Prop 209 because that was back in 1996. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're going back, you know, decades now. A lot of people who were voting weren't even around, didn't live here, you know, weren't old enough, weren't born. Uh, you know, so I think that when it comes to something that may be a little confusing, confusing on the ballot, people tend to vote no uh, if they're not sure about it. And, uh, you know, that may have been part of the problem for Prop 16. Now, Scott, uh, we're talking now on Friday morning, the 6th of election week, as, as we're all still waiting and watching on the national returns. But, you know, if we do have a Biden-Harris win going forward, how do you see California's role changing? I mean, we've had such a contentious relationship between California and the White House for the last four years. 
Yeah, there have been like 100 lawsuits filed by Attorney General Javier Becerra against the Trump administration. Obviously, that will stop. <laughs> um, but, you know, with Kamala Harris as vice president, Joe Biden, of course, also very well known to uh, California. Uh, we're going to have a pretty good pipeline to Washington, to the executive branch. And if you put that together with Nancy Pelosi as speaker, uh, you know, it's hard to really think of any state that's going to have more clout in Washington than, uh, than California does. Scott Schaefer is senior editor for the California Politics and Government Desk at KQED. Some California voters cast a ballot for the first time this week during a pandemic and a contentious national election. Voters like Raul Alvarez, who lives on Catalina Island. He and his 23-year-old daughter, Diana, filled out their ballots together this year. My dad specifically went to his P.O. box, saw that we got the ballots, and then he brought them back to his apartment and was like, hey, Diana, let's vote. For you, being your second time just has to do with your age. You know what I mean? You're only 23. But I mean, for me, it had to be because I wasn't a citizen and I became a citizen recently. And this is the first elections that I'm allowed to vote. I mean, I became a citizen after the previous election. And do you remember, like, the reason why you felt so strongly a need to become a citizen? Well, sure. The right to vote is not a, is you, you earn that by becoming a citizen. And it's a really complicated process, you know, the elections and everything, and you learn more and then you want to know more. So voting is, is, is a great thing, you know, and some people take it for granted because they always have had the privilege, you know, the, the right to vote for somebody that never had it. And then they have it, but they want to take advantage of it, you know, and be part of it, you know. I remember us both like opening it up and obviously like the big thing is voting for the next president in the United States. And I had gone over a couple of the propositions too, but I wasn't really prepared for any of the judges that we were going to be voting for. And I remember Papa, we just kind of like looked at each other and we're like, we're going to have to do some research while looking yeah. this over. I, I honestly, I Google it. I, you know, I, yeah. and I said, wait a second. It's not about just, oh, that guy's Democrat, let's vote. No, 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 no. It has to do with, right now on the internet, there's a lot of track records of what the people have really done and stuff. Uh, it's, and that's who you vote for, you know, and hopefully your vote will make the difference. We had, like, different opinions on it, I remember. The vote is a personal thing. There are certain things we share, you know, as families, as communities, but also you yourself as a person. Yeah, and I remember when we got to the president, like, we both immediately oh, yeah. kind of knew exactly yeah. who we were voting for. Yeah. But we also, like, kind of had a laugh about it just because it was <laughs> so obvious yeah. for you and me who we were going to vote oh, for. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then also just seeing Kanye West's name yeah, up there. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. You were probably the best person I could vote with because I feel like I'm a bit stressed out with anyone else. But you're, like, a very good listener to me rambling on and on, <laughs> especially about, like, propositions and stuff because I already had some thoughts about it. So it was kind of cool, like getting to see like how you voted versus me because I feel like it's such a solo activity or at least it was the last time I voted because I just went in into a stuffy little box but this time it was kind of like sit down do your homework 
drink some coffee, and just vote with your dad talking about it. It was kind of fun, actually. Several statewide propositions this time around had to do with voting itself, with expanding the number of Californians who can cast a vote at the ballot box, as well as some measures around criminal justice reform. Joining us to talk about those is Guy Marzarati. He's politics and government reporter for KQED. Hi, Guy. Hey, Sasha. So let's start with these measures that had to do with enfranchisement, with getting more voters to be able to go to the polls in California. Prop 18, a measure that would have allowed 17-year-olds to vote in the primaries if they were eligible to vote in November. That one went down. That's right. That measure was defeated. And really, when you look at the map of how votes are coming in on Prop 18, it's really only the state's most liberal counties that are supporting it around the Bay Area and Los Angeles. The limited polling we had on this leading up to the election was that older, more conservative voters were opposed to it. That seems to have played out in the election itself, um, which, you know, I think maybe there was a concern that these younger voters could be impressionable, maybe likely to approve uh, more tax measures directly on the ballot, um, or maybe a thought that, look, 18 is kind of the standard age we've set for a lot of things. Why make this exception um, for for 17-year-olds in some primary elections? Let's turn to Prop 17. That was the measure that will allow parolees to vote. That one did pass. That's right. And also it was kind of framed as a criminal justice uh, reform issue because it's dealing with Californians on parole. So kind of a debate played out over what's the purpose of parole. If it's really to be kind of uh, a stage of rehabilitation, then why not let parolees vote as they are allowed to pursue jobs and education? And so I think when it comes to this uh, kind of crossover, Californians were open to allowing parolees to vote because we've seen on issues directly before California voters Criminal justice is one issue where the electorate has turned progressive um, over the last decade. Well, let's hear from Jose Gonzalez. He's a parolee in Los Angeles who's going to be able to vote now that this measure is passed. For me, it's important because now I have a son. I could be talking about voting and it changes his narrative or his perspective on what it is to vote. And so there's, you know, roughly 40,000 Californians on parole who, because of the passage of Prop 17, now will have a chance to vote in future elections. And Guy, another measure on the ballot would have actually limited the possibility of parole for people charged with some crimes and would have reclassified those crimes to be more serious under California law. That one, Prop 20, was struck down and it was something opposed by prisoners' rights groups. Right. And I think with Proposition 20, what you had was voters protecting the changes that California voters have enacted in recent years. Right. These changes to sentencing, um, you know, changes some felonies to, to misdemeanors. That was something voters approved in Prop 47. These, you know, earlier opportunities for uh, parole for nonviolent offenders. That was something voters approved in Prop 57. Both of those were, you know, proposed to be changed with Proposition 20. And I think voters protect with this vote to defeat Prop 20. They protected this ongoing move that California has had leftward in terms of criminal justice reform. And there were a number of survivors of crimes or family members of people who'd been victims of crimes who were coming out against Prop 20, including Rebecca Weicker, whose sister was murdered. Now she works for prison reform with an organization called Restore Justice in Los Angeles. We were poised, if this had passed, to go backwards. And so it's really a relief. I'm really proud to be a Californian because I think we really 
are in a position to show the rest of the of the country that we don't need to be scared of responding to the the harms of mass incarceration that there's it's not in opposition at all to the needs of survivors and the needs of communities that that it's a both and it's not an either or you know guy one of the most confusing measures on the ballot at least for me was prop 25 which had to do with bail reform it was so hard to figure out exactly who was behind it and who was opposing it right so this was confusing even from the yes and no right so this is a referendum on uh, the law passed in 2018 that eliminated cash bail in California basically replacing it with these scientifically based risk assessment tools to gauge a person's risk their public public safety risk uh, pre-trial. So voting yes on Prop 25 would have kept that in place. Instead, voters rejected this, rejected the idea of ending cash bail. And as you mentioned, the campaign itself was also very confusing because you had, you know, uh, some progressives supporting this law that went into effect, urging a yes vote. But then you had other progressives groups saying, no, this this change gave too much power to judges, urging a no vote. And then you also had conservatives, the bail industry itself, of course, uh, encouraging a no vote. They saw this as a clear kind of existential threat to their business. Okay, Guy Marzarati, politics and government reporter for KQED. I just feel that they're going to cheat this election, the Democrats, so I made sure I was in person. When I became a citizen, I took it very seriously, and I I don't skip an election. Well, I figure if you you don't vote, you don't have no right to bitch about anything. They say nobody's vote counts, all votes count. There's been a lot of talk this week about the, quote, Latino vote, which is complicated and kind of a vague term because there is no one Latino vote. There are Latino or Latinx voters, but they're not a monolithic group. They're multiracial, multilingual, with origins in many different parts of Latin America and the Caribbean. Some are immigrants. Some have been in California since it was part of Mexico. But we do know that people who fall under that ethnic label, as problematic as it is, are the largest ethnic group in California. Farida Javala Romero, who files immigration stories for the California Report, has been looking into what's been surprising or not surprising about how they voted this election. So we won't know for months. We won't have like um, a more solid picture of how Latinos voted in the state. But what we do have is the American Election Eve poll, which focused on voters of color, including some 5,000 plus uh, Latinos nationwide. And they found that the proportion of Latino voters who supported President Trump this election grew, not only, uh, you know, nationwide, but all also in California. So this poll found that in this state, uh, 16% of uh, Latino voters supported President Trump in 2016. And this election, it was more like 22%. Any sense of why that is? I spoke with David Hernandez. Um, So he's uh, 72 years old, born and raised in Los Angeles. He describes himself as a third-generation Mexican-American, and he's the head of the Los Angeles Hispanic Republican Club. So he basically says that Latinos like him voted for President Trump because he's a better option for the economy. The pandemic, you know, Sasha, is like the main uh, top issue for voters this election, including Latinos. David sees President Trump as wanting to open the economy faster. What if you're a gardener? What if you're an electrician or a laborer? 
where you used to work as a, as a waiter or as a, a chef or a cook, they can't do that job from home. Well, there is a concern over the disease itself. There is a more uh, immediate concern that they're not going to be able to pay their rent, that they're not going to be able to take care of their families. So I spoke with other eligible voters in California and um, some of them, you know, more conservative uh, who uh, feel that President Trump has been better for businesses in general and for the economy. But they didn't agree with President Trump's rhetoric and policies targeting immigrants and people of color. But they also weren't super excited about Joe Biden as a candidate for, for president. And so Jose Luis Leon was in this camp and he owns a Mexican restaurant in Lemur. It's a small city in the Central Valley. No hay nada bueno de los dos. Para mí no hay nada bueno de los dos. Que quieren ser presidentes, no hay nada bueno. He says they, he didn't like either presidential candidate. And he actually ended up not voting at all. And that's something really important that we need to mention about Latinos in the state and nationwide. So looking back at past presidential elections in 2012, less than 40% of eligible Latinos voted in California. And then in 2016, it was 46%. And so most political scientists I, I spoke with um, expected, you know, that turnout was going to be a lot bigger this election. But they say if it's above 50 percent of eligible Latino voters who cast ballots, that that's progress. And some of those are first time Latino voters and young people. You spoke with some of them, too. I spoke with Alondra Lara, who's 18, and she's from the Central Valley, from a small city, Sanger. Her dad works at a funeral home, uh, you know, cleaning. And she's a freshman, an art major at CSU Fullerton, and she was really fired up to vote. It's really important for me to not only express my voice, but express my voice to those who cannot vote, those who are also Latino who are unable to vote and unable to share their voice. Did support for Trump and Biden really come down to the way voters feel about immigration? For the Republican Latinos I spoke with, immigration wasn't the top issue. It really was, you know, uh, economic growth, jobs, the pandemic. But for Democrats and people who want Trump out of the White House, um, many of them said it was a very important issue, like top of mind. Even people who aren't immigrants or Latinos, like uh, Reggie Evans, um, he's 64, African-American from Oakland, and he said Immigration was really top of mind for him uh, when he cast his ballot, uh, that the way President Trump, uh, his policies, that the way uh, this administration has treated um, asylum seekers and refugees at the southern border. I can't get the image out of my mind of seeing a man and his six-year-old daughter face down in the Rio Grande, dead, trying to come to seek asylum in America. The girl is six years old and her, and her puppy drowned face down in the water. You know, it just really makes me angry sometimes. And so he believed this election is so important that at 64 years old, uh, he came out to vote. And this he told me this was his only second time voting. Uh, the first time voting for him was when he was 18. Wow, back in the 1970s. So it seems like getting back to the, to the Latino, the Latinx vote, 
part of the problem has been outreach to voters from both parties. And you know, Sasha, Latinos are the largest ethnic group in the state. Many of them can't vote yet because they're kids, but they will be able to vote, you know, when they turn um, 18. And we know from past elections that um, the best way to engage Latinos is to invite them into the electoral process and uh, really talk to them about the issues they care about and how the ballot is going to impact their life. Farida Javala Romero covers immigration for KQED and the California Report. And now to the most expensive proposition in California history. Companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, and Postmates spent more than $200 million to bankroll Prop 22, which passed. It will allow app-based companies to classify their workers as a new kind of independent contractor under California law. I'm a busy single mom, and the flexibility of app-based driving works for my family. I can go out there and make money, and I can still see my daughter. But not all drivers supported Prop 22. It was dressed up as a social justice uh, initiative for drivers. It was not that. It has created a second-class worker category in the state of California. Here to break things down for us about how Prop 22 will change how some people work in our state is Sam Harnett, who covers labor and technology for KQED's Silicon Valley desk. Basically, the argument is is that all the Uber drivers and DoorDash, the food deliverers and Instacart shoppers that you see, the gig companies argue that these are Uh, entrepreneurs, that they have their own businesses, that they're independent and they're not workers. And because they're not workers, they aren't entitled to benefits like um, guaranteed minimum wage, overtime, workers' compensation, or unemployment insurance. Well, Uber and Lyft say this is going to be good for drivers. What is the benefit package that they're offering? I mean, the benefit package is really slippery. I mean, the, the, the easiest way to define it is it's watered down employee benefits. So instead of workers' compensation, uh, the workers would be able to buy insurance. Instead of getting health insurance, they would be able to buy health care subsidies. Uh, instead of having guaranteed minimum wage, they would have 120% of minimum wage guaranteed for engaged driving time. But of course, a lot of time working for gig apps means waiting for jobs, which is not going to go into that calculation. What about unemployment? I know during the pandemic, there were drivers who no longer had as many rides, and then they had a hard time getting unemployment. In the new category, there's no unemployment insurance. Um, There's been some studies that have suggested that Uber, uh, Lyft, and other gig companies would have had to pay California hundreds of millions of dollars in unemployment insurance. But because they've always classified their workers as contractors, they haven't paid a dime into the state unemployment insurance fund. So yeah, we've seen with the pandemic that not not having unemployment for these workers has been pretty catastrophic. So Sam, what could the passage of this proposition mean for other industries? Right now, the law is... Uh, limited to companies that use apps for transportation and delivery. But there are lots of companies uh, that could create apps, say, for their trucking business. Or you can see a company that maybe does warehouse fulfillment, making an app and then and then arguing to sort of push uh, what's established with Prop 22 a little farther. I mean, any corporation that could take advantage of this sub-employee category of worker is going to go for it because it is way cheaper than having to pay for employee benefits.
benefits. Uh, and then on top of all that, uh, Lyft, Uber, and the other gig companies have said they already want to pursue this nationally, uh, which is something they've been working on already. The, the Trump Department of Labor actually, um, before the election, um, uh, issued a ruling that would make it easier for gig companies to classify workers as contractors. And the gig companies are already trying to push this kind of third-way sub-employee worker category through federally. What about drivers who are relieved that this has passed, who feel like it is going to give them more flexibility? There are so many gig workers who are really desperate for income and who are happy to have any chance to make any money. And so there is a sentiment with a lot of these gig workers of like, you know what, it might not be perfect, but I'm, I just need money and I don't want that to change. Sam Harnett covers labor and technology for KQED's Silicon Valley Bureau. And that's it for this nail-biting week. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Our technical producer is Rob Spate. And our intern is Ariella Markowitz. And I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.